Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I'm glad you joined us today. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where we spend our time and what to think and how to go about our day. Some people choose to fill the gaps in their day with worthwhile things like uplifting podcasts. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life and the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. We believe at the foundation of our behavior and beliefs is the way we see the world and ourselves in it. So, hopefully today, in this time together, we will get a new perspective of how to think and live better. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how you win. On December 25th, 1991, something extraordinary happened that would change world history forever. Four days earlier, the Commonwealth of Independent States had been formed. Leaders from these former Soviet Union states, some of which had declared independence from the Soviet Union, got together to ratify their independence and pledge cooperation. Those who signed the agreement included Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Armenia, and more. The communist USSR had, in one form or another, existed for 70 years until that day. And during those years, central to the USSR's identity and economic well-being was Ukraine. Ukraine was the cornerstone of the Soviet Union. It was the second most populous and powerful of the 15 Soviet republics. It was the Union's breadbasket with huge grain and wheat production. Each year, over 110 million tons of wheat, barley, corn, and soya are produced in the Ukraine. And this represents about 10% of the world's wheat market and 15% of the corn market. This compares to the U.S., which only grows about 6% of the world's wheat market. The Ukraine was home to most of the Soviet defense industries, the Black Sea Fleet, and some of the Union's nuclear arsenal. So it's easy to see why Russia attempts to keep a tight hold on Ukraine and why being at odds with Russia has become a way of life for Ukraine. In 2014, the first time since World War II, a European state annexed another. That is when Russia annexed Crimea. Crimea is a peninsula between the Ukraine and Russia that is almost surrounded by the Black Sea. And in 1991, when Ukraine declared independence from the Soviet Union, Crimea, while part of Ukraine, was given some autonomy. And much of the Russian fleet remained in Crimea. So in 2014, Crimea was occupied by Russia, yet still fought as a Ukrainian territory. So, having annexed Crimea in 2014, it's not surprising that Russia believed it could annex the rest of Ukraine. And over the years, the Ukraine has tilted a bit more to the West each year, and shortly before the Russian invasion, was getting favor from NATO. Many Russian politicians viewed the divorce in 1991 from Ukraine as a mistake and a threat to Russia's power. And letting it fall into the Western orbit would be seen as many as a major blow to Russia's international prestige. Russia was, for a long time, Ukraine's largest trading partner. But in recent years, China has stepped in to consume most of Ukraine's exports. Additionally, 
Ukrainian pipelines carry Russian oil to customers in Central and Eastern Europe. And Russia pays Ukraine huge fees for access to these pipelines. And with Kiev signaling its desire to align with NATO, in 2022, Russia made several major security demands of the United States, including cease trying to get Ukraine in NATO and remove all nuclear weapons from Europe. Well, here's what the experts have said that perhaps is the most important motivating factor for Putin to invade Ukraine. It was his fear that Ukraine would continue to develop into a modern, Western-style democracy that would inevitably undermine his power in Russia and dash his hopes of rebuilding a Russia-led sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. Putin wants to destabilize and frighten Ukraine. He wants the Ukrainian economy to collapse. He wants foreign investors to flee. He wants his neighbors in Belarus and Kazakhstan, even Poland and Hungary, to doubt whether democracy will ever be viable for them in the long term. So in February of 2022, Putin ordered a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which led with 200,000 troops marching into Ukrainian territory from Crimea on the south, East Russia, and Belarus to the north. However, Ukrainian forces bogged down the Russian advance, and in August of 2022, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive against Russian forces. It's estimated that 100,000 Ukrainians have been killed and 8 million refugees have fled the country. The Russian missile attacks demonstrated Russia's tactics. The missiles struck the power grid in Ukraine, hospitals, and neighborhoods, hoping that the fear would drive people from Ukraine and Russia could come behind and grab the scorched earth. Shortly after the invasion began, the First Lady of Ukraine called on the world to help with the evacuation of children, particularly children who were under medical care. America and other countries answered her call. 60 Minutes reported on one mother, Ruxolana Semeraz, and her two-year-old daughter, who had been fighting cancer just before the invasion and joined thousands of refugees fleeing to Poland. At the border, they had to wait in line for 24 hours, and they had cancer medication for her daughter that needed refrigeration, and she was losing hope for the treatment of her daughter. But then, hundreds of nurses and doctors showed up. Children were taken to Lviv near Poland, where they boarded a medical train. The train was staffed with doctors and nurses and needed supplies. The first stop of this convoy, a medical center in Poland set up by St. Jude Hospital, from Memphis, Tennessee. There, sicker children were prioritized. Some were transferred to ambulances, some to helicopters, and others then hopped aboard the convoy train to travel to the Unicorn Clinic in Kiels. There, they had converted hotels to hold the refugees and fully equipped hospitals to care for the sick children. Arriving refugees were shocked at the kindness showed to them. This was the opposite of the hate they had experienced from Russia in Ukraine. The UN says Russia has assaulted hospitals and clinics at least 900 times. On 60 Minutes, the mother they interviewed said this, Wherever I go, I want to say thank you to every person that I meet. I feel like I want to scream out loud to everyone, thank you. America gave this to us, and I would like to have a chance to help others too, so that people believe that kindness wins. It's amazing to me that so many people responded to the needs of these children. 
that an American hospital set up a life-saving operation to be the end destination of this convoy of life and took upon themselves the duty to help and save lives that otherwise would have been lost. And you know, the same goes for you and me. It's hard to see in everyday life when we're under fire from stress and challenges, and it seems that things might not ever go our way, that kindness wins. But it does. Kindness wins, and I believe that. Anywhere you are in your convoy of life, in your home, in your business, kindness wins. It's hard sometimes to buy into this philosophy that if you are kind, even when someone else is not kind to you, kindness will, in the end, win. But I have seen too many times in my life that kindness does, in fact, win. And the end result of whatever you're engaged in may take time to turn your direction. But when you are kind, you win. Inside, it allows you to let things go. You can move on. You can give your focus to something good. Kindness wins. In writing about a now very famous study, one author said, John Gottman, a psychology professor and researcher at the University of Washington, interviewed and observed 130 newlywed couples as they carried out everyday tasks, such as cooking, cleaning, listening to music, and talking to each other. Over 90% of the time, Gottman was able to accurately predict whether the couple would still be together several years later. And how was he able to make the prediction? By observing the degree to which the couples were kind to each other. The same researcher went on to study 2,700 individuals from five countries and found that the most important trait that they valued in a long-term partner was kindness. Now, the second most important trait for males was physically attractive females and for females, financially well-off males. But the most important factor was kindness. And what does kindness look like in Gottman's study? Well, in its simplest form, it means that when one partner initiated a connection, the other partner would respond in a supportive, caring, and interested fashion. That could mean giving positive feedback or asking to hear more. You see, he noticed that one person in the marriage would make a bid. A bid was a conversation starter or observation. The husband may say, look at that beautiful bird outside. And the positivity or negativity or even indifference in the response was measured. And based solely on the kindness of the response, researchers could predict with 94% certainty whether couples, rich or poor, childless or not, whatever the situation, would be broken up, together and unhappy, or together and happy several years later. Kindness, as simple as the willingness to engage or respond positively to another person, can have a lasting impact. As a business person, this is critical for you and me to learn. A few years ago, the company MetLife implemented an aptitude test before hiring salespeople. They found that the aptitude test helped predict later success of the employees. But then they added a second test, a kindness test, and the results were astonishing. Based on the test, MetLife started to hire those who scored extremely high on the positive kindness test but even who failed the aptitude test. And this is where it got interesting. Those sales reps who scored high on the positive kindness test but failed the aptitude test outperformed those who passed MetLife's aptitude test alone. And they did so by 21% in the first year. They then outperformed others by a massive 57% in year two. The data was indisputable. Positive kindness 
heavily correlates to predicting a salesperson's success, even if they lacked the prerequisite selling aptitude. Positive kindness wins. Gottman defined kindness as giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, being considerate when the other person is having a challenging time, expressing interest in another person, sharing joy or excitement, and being gentle in conflict. So, if kindness wins, then how do we in business and life use more of it so we too can win? Well, the first thing we must do is open our eyes to our kind and unkind habits. It's easy when life is busy and stressful to forget our kindness habits. You know, when you slow down to let a car come into your lane, you shop at a store across town where there's a different economic demographic and pays for someone's groceries. At work, you give someone else the credit or you celebrate someone else's success and so forth. Some unkind habits that creep into our life include criticism, gossip, impatience, and more. Other habits include being melodramatic, narcissistic, avoidant, or obsessive. All of these can keep kindness from guiding our actions. But what we can do is clearly take a step back to see what habits rule our day, kind habits or unkind habits. Next, we can have all the plans to change a habit or recognize more fully our kind or unkind behaviors, but at the foundation of it all, if we genuinely feel kind, our actions will take care of themselves. Here's one perspective that can help. Do you genuinely believe that the person to whom you are talking or with whom you are interacting is of more value or at least equal value in God's eyes as you? And if so, and you hold that view of them, you are more likely to be kind. It's strange, but when you authentically believe in another person's value, you're kind. And I believe that every one of us is destined or at least called, to become like God, that we're here on this earth to learn to be like Him. And one of His defining characteristics is to be kind. So if God feels that way about other people, and they have the potential to grow and be more like Him, then the people in your family and on your team and around you each day must have immense value. C.S. Lewis said, It's a serious thing to live in a society of people who are all possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may be one day a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is in the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors and everlasting splendors. When you genuinely see someone's true value, it is so much easier to treat them with authentic kindness. It is true. Our perspective drives our practices. And in practicing kindness, well, that can happen anywhere. Even in politics, which have become so unkind, kindness can win. After his death, former President Jimmy Carter wrote that George H.W. Bush's administration was marked by kindness, grace, and civility. 
He said, you can look to the 41st president's thank you notes as evidence. Bush was one of the modern era's greatest letter writers. This old-fashioned virtue became his hallmark, an endearing practice that fostered warm connections with world leaders, potential allies, and showed kindness to his opponents. He knew that compassion and kindness helps a person establish strong and positive relationships. He carved out most time in evenings to write cards and thank you notes, writing an estimated 700 handwritten cards during his time as president. Countless times he would send a congratulatory note to a foreign leader for a seemingly innocuous achievement, wrote Condoleezza Rice. Even I frequently received a thank you note from the president for a job well done, and this kindness and courtesy made it a joy to work with him. Bush wrote to the actress Goldie Hawn after sitting next to her at dinner, thanking her for taking his mind off Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. He wrote a note to actor Chevy Chase, thanking him for a briefcase that Chase and Dan Aykroyd sent him. Bush also kept a diary, dictating into a tape recorder. The night he lost his bid for re-election, Bush made a diary entry to help himself get past the pain of defeat. He set out a to-do list of sorts for the coming days. It said, Comfort the ones I've hurt and let down. Be strong, be kind, be generous of spirit, be understanding, and let people know how grateful you are. And Bush wasn't the only politician to value kindness. Ronald Reagan carried himself, even in the most powerful office, with decency and attention to small kindnesses that define a good life. He was courtly, gentle, and a considerate man, never known to slight or embarrass others. Many people across the country cherish letters he wrote in his own hand to family members on important occasions, to old friends dealing with sickness, to strangers with questions about his days in Hollywood. A boy once wrote to him requesting federal assistance to help clean up his bedroom. The president wrote back, Unfortunately, funds are dangerously low. I'm sure your mother is fully justified in proclaiming your room a disaster. Therefore, you are in an excellent position to launch another volunteer program in our nation. Congratulations. No matter what your position, value kindness because you value the person. Next, kindness is a way of living. Somehow, I don't know why, when you decide you're a kind person, it just starts to take over your thinking and acting. You return a grocery cart for a mom with kids. You open a door. You say a kind word. You answer a text thoughtfully and with encouragement. And it just becomes part of you. I have known kind people, and they are giants in my life. I look up to them. I hold them up. And this is why kindness wins. When kindness takes over, you start to rise to become one of those giants. In 1946, in northern France, Boris and Marianne Rosimov welcomed a baby boy into the world. His father was Bulgarian and his mother Polish. With four brothers and sisters, he was sure to have a happy time. At birth, he weighed a whopping 13 pounds, and his parents weren't particularly big. His mother was 5 foot 2 inches, and his father 6 foot 2 inches. But by the time he was 12 years of age, he was already 6 foot 3 inches tall. Soon, he was diagnosed with a hormonal disorder that caused him to grow unusually big. Throughout his childhood, he worked on his family farm and learned woodworking. Given his size, he moved to Paris at age 18 and was connected to a local wrestling promoter. His popularity quickly caught on in Japan and Canada and Europe. While wrestling, 
he continued to grow. Soon he reached seven feet, two inches tall, and weighed 380 pounds. In 1973, he became part of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. He was an instant success. He was matched against the famous Hulk Hogan at the showdown at Shea Stadium and hundreds of others. He was called the biggest babyface in wrestling and would be given the name of Andre the Giant. There are stories of him consuming 50 beers in one sitting, and he could eat and eat. He famously said, what God gave me, I use to make a living. And you may be thinking he was talking about his extreme size, but no. He was beloved in wrestling and in Hollywood because of the type of person he was, because he was a kind person. He may have been described as the eighth wonder of the world, but despite being physically odd, he was loved because he was always smiling, always kind, and willing to help anyone who needed help. Almost all who knew him noted he never spoke badly of other people. Although there was one exception. When preparing for a bout with Hulk Hogan, he said, I don't like to speak badly of people. I have grown up thinking and being told that if you can't say something nice about someone, you shouldn't say anything at all. But I must break that rule in this case because I hate Hulk Hogan very much. He is a big, ugly goon, and I want to squash his face. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger said that one day he tried to pay for lunch, and Andre grabbed him, carried him back to his chair like a little doll, and said, I pay. Hogan said he often heard people say horrible things about Andre because of the way he looked, but he was a gracious and kind person. If you looked at Andre, he was physically ugly. A marvel, yes, but ugly. But people were drawn to him, attracted to the kind person that he was. And we too, through kindness, can become a giant of sorts. If you're seeking to be a better leader, a better business builder, or better parent or friend, if you're seeking to influence others in any of these settings, trust that as you see yourself as a kind person and identify with it, you will win more with them. Unfortunately, it seems today that kindness isn't the norm, but that doesn't mean that it can't be our norm. Not long ago, I read the book Deep Kindness, and in that book, the author said in high school, he and his fellow students formed a group called RAKE, R-A-K-E. It stood for Random Acts of Kindness, etc. Once a week, they would get together to talk about kindness and then go out and do what they talked about. And they decided that there were really two rules to their organization. Those two rules were, first, meet someone new, and second, leave them better than you found them. Imagine if you were to put those two simple practices into place today. Now, some of you listening to this podcast today are building a business. And those two rules could really help you in finding your next business partner. Meet someone new and leave them better than you found them. How can you leave them better than you found them? Listen, be affirming, be constructive, invite, help them. And you can see that this simple practice could go a long way. Now, let me make this simple comment. As I reflect on the kind people in my life, it's interesting the truly kind people those who respond when I reach out, express gratitude, are good friends, show up when I need them, give of themselves, don't criticize, and engage with me, are those I want to do business with. These are they who I value the most. When we're kind, we become those types of attractive leaders and people. 
you know, years ago, Clayton Christensen wrote a book with a remarkable title. And the title was, How Will You Measure Your Life? In his opening chapter, he describes the lives of his classmates at Harvard University as he observed them at several subsequent class reunions. Among his classmates were executives at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and many Fortune 500 companies. He notes that many of his classmates were unhappy and their lives didn't turn out as they wanted despite their education and success. And this caused him to think about the measures we use to measure life. He noted that for the people who achieve or rise in a hierarchical sense within an organization, they get a title or acquire wealth, we often think their lives as better or of more value than ours. But that's because we choose to measure things that way. But what about the end of our days? What measure will be used for us? What measure will really matter? And what, in the long run, when we face the end of our life, will we use to measure our life differently? Well, Christensen goes on to suggest that God will evaluate us personally on what we did with the circumstances in which we were placed and how we helped others who were placed in those same circumstances with us. In other words, our real job, our real measure of success is how did we serve? How were we kind in our circumstance? When I learned this lesson from Clayton, a lot of things changed in my mind. You mean to tell me that my life will be measured by how I help the people who were in my current circumstance? This means in this job or my circumstances today, I will be measured by how kind I am? It means that you and I may not be in the circumstances we want to be, but our circumstances are not the yardstick. How kind we are in those circumstances is the yardstick. And I believe leadership is one of the most noble professions if practiced well. No other role except for parenting, which is leadership, can teach you more about you than leading. But so many of us fail in that role because we think leadership is about us. And the truth is, it's nothing about us. It's everything about the kindness we show to those we lead. In the scripture, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So, as we end today, I'm resolved to be a better imitator of God in one simple way, to put on the identity that I am a kind person. I may not be today, but with that sense of purpose, of self, it just might help me rise to be a kind person. Imagine if we all tried to put on kindness, we would do great good. And for all of us trying to build or do something remarkable in life, we would surely find that kindness wins. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.